Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 12th of June, 2013, and Larry Ferlazzo is our guest again. Larry, thanks so much for coming back. Well, it's great, uh, great being here. Thanks for the invitation. Glad uh, people were people were saying that their students could use some self motivation. This gave me a little self motivation. I'm sort of crawling <laughs> through the uh, finish line of uh, the end of our school year tomorrow. So this is good. Oh well, then that's a real sacrifice for you to be on the show. It's most appreciated. <laughs> no sacrifice at all. So the future of education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, we had the School Leadership Summit in March. All of those recordings are up and free at schoolleadershipsummit.com. Coming up this month in San Antonio, if you're going to ISTE, we have the all-day unconference the day before ISTE uh, called Hack Education this year. And then we have a series of events called ISTE Unplugged. Go to isteunplugged.com for more information. Lots of free fun. Can't wait to see many of you there. Uh, we have a STEM conference coming in September. It's called STEM X. The X is the variable for everything else. Like the other large, massive global conferences, these are practitioner-led, peer-to-peer learning opportunities. This should be a lot of fun. Three days all around STEM and STEM-related topics. Then in October, the Future of Libraries Conference, uh, Library 2.013, and in November, the five-day, always exciting global education conference. If you would like to join us in the future, we have several good shows coming up. Matt Hearn comes on July 2nd. There is a little bit of a break between now and post-ISTE. Uh, Will Richardson then comes on to talk about his small book, Why School? Don Winkle on student entrepreneurship and the real flipped learning. That will be fun. David Marshak is going to talk about self-design. And then in September, Doug Johnson on the Indispensable Librarian. There will be others in between there, but um, we're still working on dates for some other shows. Lots of fun. And Peggy's always complimentary. Peggy, you sort of you live that principle of appreciative, um, appreciative inquiry or just positive feedback where he talks about it in the book. And you're a great example of that. If you've missed any of our shows, they're all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form in an MP3 version. Ben Rhymes came on to talk about virtual book clubs. Are they what we had hoped they would be, and how are people doing them? It was a fun show. Uh, Doug Lamov and Dan Willingham came to talk about their new books. Peter Gray on Free to Learn. We're actually going to mention Peter in tonight's show. John Hunter uh, on his uh, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. I actually got to spend a half a day with John in North Carolina couple of weeks ago. And like Larry, just somebody who sort of authentically is interested in other people. And, and Larry actually made that connection as I was reading the book. I thought uh, it's really fun to meet people that you know care about other people. Uh, I, I certainly agree on that. And, and <clears throat> excuse me. It's, uh, well, that's you. There's <laughs> not an easy way to respond to that, is there? <laughs> so if you'd like to indicate where you're listening from, those of you in the live studio audience, look for the star to the left of the map. It's the second icon down. There's a little set of icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star. You click on it twice, and then you click on the map. You can probably hear I have a slight cold, but I am back in Park City, Utah, where it's been warm, but not nearly as 
oppressively warm as Phoenix, Arizona or Sacramento, California. Feel free to put a note in the chat and let us know where you are, time, temperature, anything else that you think is valuable to know. And you can keep doing that as we move forward, but I am going to move the slide forward. There is a Mighty Bell space for today's show. I will give you the link in the chat. Mighty Bell is a content and curation program started by Gina Bianchini, who was the creator of Ning. I have done consulting work for them. It is in the past, but it's worth noting. Uh, I do really like the concept and the program, and so we've collected some resources about Larry in that our Mighty Bell space, and you're welcome to add to them and keep the conversation going there afterwards. So Larry, this is the second book in what I now know is a trilogy. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you've mapped that out? Uh, well, I I guess I, I couldn't, I wish I could say it was a uh, pre-planned, uh, logically designed trilogy, but, uh, but it has not been. <laughs> it was, um, but it's basically adding new um, new concepts as I try them out in the classroom and as I learn more about them and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work. Um, and certainly over the past few years, um, this idea of developing intrinsic motivation has been popularized even more and there's been a lot more research into it, certainly Daniel Pink and his book drive, uh, you know, helped uh, jumpstart that interest. Um, but uh, I think that through three books, uh, I anticipate covering at least the, the major concepts in the classroom that I have faced, the major challenges that I have faced over the past 10 years, and seeing how to implement the idea of developing intrinsic motivation in students in all those major challenge areas. So you, at the beginning of the book, or I think it's at the beginning, you talk about the importance, the, the new understanding we have of the importance of the adolescent period in someone's life. How does that relate to intrinsic motivation? Well, Dr. James Heckman, who uh, has certainly been in the news lately as uh, with the um, announcement by President Obama wanting to start preschool for everyone, um, and which is what Dr. Heckman is primarily known for, the, um, that he's done a, uh, a lot of research and he's known primarily for the, um, the research that has shown the importance of preschool education over the long term for, for people. What he is, uh, uh, what his research shows that is a little less known is that he's identified basically two areas where a lot of the, the, the primary qualities of what we look at as social and emotional learning, this idea of developing grit, persistence, self-control, um, that there are two times in people's lives when they tend to be generally open to this idea and can make the ma most major strides in improvement. 
One of those is during the preschool years. Uh, and that's, again, what he's particularly known for. But the other area, the other time that he's identified when people are most open to this is during adolescence. Um, does not mean that every that people are closed during other times and that they cannot develop persistence or self-control during uh, uh, during other times in their lives. But that those are the times when you can get the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. So you talk about uh, all students being intrinsically motivated. I actually wondered about that. Right? You said it may just be that they're not motivated in the areas we want them to be. But I sometimes worry that part of what schooling does to students is it actually removes motivation, that they don't, uh, they don't have a confidence in their ability to do much of anything. How does that kind of play into your sense that there, there is some intrinsic motivation somewhere? Well, you know, in addition to research, it also comes out of my community organizing experience. And I was a community organizer for 19 years prior to becoming a cl uh, classroom teacher uh, 10 years ago. You know, our perspective is, you know, everyone is interested in something. It just may not be something that we want them to be interested in. And it may, they may not be interested in doing it exact, exactly the way that we want them to do it in, but that you know, everyone is interested in something. I mean, a story that I tell, um, a perfect example is a, uh, a student of mine uh, a year or two ago, we were working on a on, on writing persuasive essays, and the topic was writing an essay about what is the most challenging natural disaster that people are researching natural disasters. And, he, you know, he, would, he did not want to do that. And actually, he has a long multi-year history, going to your question, of not being very motivated academically. Uh, one of the key elements of helping students develop more intrinsic motivation is, is building relationships, knowing what students are genuinely interested in, and being able to connect to that. I know, based on my conversations with him, I knew he was a sports fan. and I said, well, I know you're a football fan. Write a persuasive essay. And what's your favorite team? Okay, Raiders. Write a persuasive essay about why the Raiders are the best football team out around. The issue wasn't. I didn't really care if he, you know if he wrote that uh, focused on natural disasters. If the if the main focus of the lesson was to learn how to write a persuasive essay. And I think, uh, and he ended up writing a you know a persuasive essay. He said, well, wow, I could do that. He did that. And then actually asked if he could write another one to get extra credit for all the other assignments he hadn't done. Coincidentally, the next week we had a, a student study team meeting scheduled with his, with his all of his teachers and his mother. He was able to show the essay, two essays to his mother, and his mother was started crying. She had never seen him write an essay before. But I think the key is, yeah, I mean, if if, if we are flexible. And you know, and, and are attuned to students' self-interests, we're able to more concretely connect those to what we want to teach in the classroom. We want to sort of keep, you know, as long as we keep our eyes on the prize, so to speak. Um, 
I mean, that's, but, but certainly that flexibility is often um, not, not there um, in the classroom. You've used the words interest and motivation somewhat interchangeably there, but I want to give you, I want to, I want to suggest that you're, that you're actually doing something really important and valuable as you move someone from intrinsic interest to, to motivation. And maybe that's why I kind of hesitated, which is what I think you did for that student, and when it comes through so clearly in the book, is that you encouraged, saw and encouraged the capacity of the individual. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a huge number of students who leave school feeling like they don't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, unfortunately, oftentimes in our, you know, in our schools, um, you know, the standardization of both testing and, you know, and lessons do not uh, leave, leave time or is not perceived as leaving time for trying to help students develop that, you know, that inner capacity. It's more, let's get through the chapters, let's get through the lessons, and whether it's connected to students' lives and their vision or not. For me, at core in the book is, is the respect that you have for the student. And I keep, we've come back to this several times in the last few interviews. But that respect for the student comes from a place of, of believing how you treat others, right, and how, how you see and treat others. Um, is this the difference between Skinnerism, behaviorism, and agency? Is it the, the recognition of the individual potential? Is that too simplified? A, a, a way of putting it? No, I mean, I think that's a, you know, that, that's a good description. And, and I think, you know, also it's not just an either or kind of, you know, kind of situation. I mean, you know, certainly um, there are oftentimes when I um, have to, you know, when I use an extrinsic motivation, right? I mean, there are times when you know, if a student is just, I know, out of control and disruptive, um, you know, I, I have certainly used bribery sometimes in the past. If um, sometimes extrinsic motivation can be used to introduce people or students to, to new concepts or new authors. Um, but the issue is, you know, which side do you tend to be on? Do you tend to be on the side of bribery, um, you know, or offering conditioning, or do you tend to be on the side of what Sir Ken Robinson talked about, you know, creating the conditions, uh, like a farmer, you know, they're creating the conditions for growth. Uh, you know, you can't beat a um, a crop into growing, but you can create those conditions. Um, you know, and we're also all human, right? And, you know, a lot of our students face lots of challenges. You know, I mean, our school is 100%, you know, it's 100% free lunch, free breakfast, and actually free, free supper. 
Um, you know, we got a lot of students who face lots of challenges. And I don't try to um, say that I am 100% on, on, on uh, the intrinsic motivation side of it. But I think I try to be there the vast majority of time. I really like the word you just used, the, uh, creating the, uh, the phrase, creating the conditions. Because it feels to me that sort of inherent in our behaviorist views from marketing to politics is this sense of going instantly to the end result. And, and I get the impression, I think you even mentioned in the book, that your community organizing sort of taught you that you, you can't actually do that. It doesn't work long term to try and mandate the results. Mm -hmm. You try and create the conditions for people to be able to achieve. Yes, you know, and that means, you know, sometimes, um, you know, achievement doesn't play out exactly the way you want it to be. You know, I mean, in, in organizing, one of the major reasons for for our success is the focus was on was on developing relationships and developing leadership and you know, getting people to share stories and then help them develop a different interpretation of those stories that move them towards action. And, um, you know, it's, it's always a challenge of trying to integrate that with the, you know, the pressures of sticking with the, you know, sticking with the curriculum and getting through the chapters and getting, getting students ready for the standardized, standardized tests. You know, we've got to, you know, recognize that there is that, that tension. Um, I mean, I think one of the problems is oftentimes our schools, our school leadership does not recognize that as a tension. You know, they, you know, they, they view the operant conditioning you know, side of things as the way to get things done. So I know that for me, um, I actually had to go through a shift in my own perspective. And um, not being a teacher in the classroom, it was with my own children, where I realized that control wasn't working. It worked up to a certain age, and then all of a sudden the results were worse than than uh, were much worse than they had been. And I had to kind of rethink my life in terms of how I interacted with others. For you, was that the community organizing? Was there is there a particular time when you? felt like you had to go through that shift, or did you just sort of naturally understand this sort of as, as a person? Oh, no, clearly, as, you know, as, as an organizer, it was an entirely new way of looking at things. Um, I mean, I, the story that I often tell is, that, is actually sort of a pre, a time prior to becoming an organizer, I spent several years in uh, working what's, what's called the Catholic Worker Movement, which is a group of folks who have soup kitchens and emergency shelters around the country and combine that work with social justice work. And one day, I was, uh, so we had a soup kitchen in, in an emergency shelter on Skid Row in San Jose, and one day I was, I was out in front and I was sweeping the front step, putting around all these guys who were passed out drunk on their step, and and a police officer pulled up in front of us, in front of the house, and started yelling at me because, you know, we were very well-intentioned but didn't really know what we were doing, and certain neighbors were unhappy with us. And 
give us ESA, how you know how we need to get more control of the place, and and then one of the guys who was passed out drunk sort of um, dr um, pulled himself up on the banister and yelled at the officer, 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 Larry tries, he tries hard. You know, we just don't listen to him. And I think this, I, I, I reflect on that a lot because I view it as a difference. Well, do I want to be um, right, you know, in terms of, you know, making, you know, getting people to do what I want them to do or getting them to believe what I want them to believe and lead with that, lead with my mouth, or do I want to uh, be effective? And lead with my ears. Right. So I think, for example, going back to that story about about the student writing the essay, I wanted to be right. I said, "Man, you need to write this essay about what natural disaster is the worst natural disaster. That's the that's the assignment. Do it." Um, or I want to be effective and be more flexible. Um, and you know, and be relational and keep my eye on the prize, what really is the major focus of what I want to accomplish. It's, in some ways, it's different. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research about uh, the difference between being authoritative and being authoritarian. And being authoritarian typically means using power unilaterally and for control, no explanation given. And you demand obedience, um, or you know, being authoritative means demonstrating strong control, but doing it relationally by listening and explaining. And there have been tons of studies for parenting styles, and I've been try I've tried to do this in my own parenting style that show that the parents that are more authoritative were viewed as more legitimate by their kids. And as a result, we're less likely to act out or, quote, unquote, show delinquent behavior. And the opposite is true for authoritarian parents. The more authoritarian you are, the more likely your kid is to, um, to show, to act out. And I think the same thing holds true in the classroom. We just got to you know, keep on, you know, uh, and clearly, and as Gene says, too many teachers play the authoritarian, um, and you know, we end up having the you know the consequences. Am I authoritarian sometimes? Yes, right. I mean, we're all human. Today, you know, during the final, was I authoritarian and threw a kid outside for a while to cool off? Yes. <laughs> Uh, because we are human. But again, do we tend to be authoritative or do we tend to be authoritarian? Looking at what do we, where do we tend to be? Uh, the great measure of this book's success for me was as I read all of the lesson plans and ideas, I wanted to do them with my own children. There is another theme, and I want to get to some of those and, and let people hear a little bit of the meat of the material. But there was another theme throughout the book that I wanted to make sure I touched on uh, with you in particular, which is, and I think we've talked about this before, but there is a pervasive sense of your actions, or the, the ones you take or the ones you recommend, being generative, meaning it's sort of explaining them, 
and giving them mm -hmm. as tools for the students to use themselves, not just something that you're a technique you're using on them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, that's critical both for long-term ownership on their part. And, you know, I also think it's critical for the other things in the, you know, the lessons that are in the books and the lessons that we do at our school. It's um, we're also interested in using those in addition to helping students become motivated and develop the qualities of grit and perseverance and self-control. We want them to we want them to read challenging texts, develop writing skills, and you can't you know and in order to do that, students have to understand the material. You know, this stuff isn't just coming out of, you know, my big head. And as my students will regularly attest, I, ha I do have, I wear an extra, extra large hat. But it does come from, you know, from lots of research and challenging texts that students will read and need to read and need to interpret. And actually, and then subsequently, teach it to other students. I mean, next year what we're doing is um, 11th graders are not only learning some of these newer lessons, but they then in turn will be coming in and teaching um, the ninth, our ninth grade students the lessons that they have learned. So we'll get back to some of the metacognitive deeper thinking in a minute. But why don't we give people a little taste of kind of how you've organized the book. You have strategies that you brought from helping students motivate themselves, the first book, plus some new ones, right? And then each chapter is set up in such a way as to help somebody deal with something in the moment uh, and then to have kind of long-term lesson planning material as well. Do you want to describe the structure of each chapter? Yeah, a lot, and I think that's a good summary. I think the, um, you know, it, it's basically, I think, you know, seven or eight questions, you know, ranging from how do I, uh, how do you motivate students, how do you handle rudeness in class, how can you help students develop higher order thinking skills, how do you get them more interested in reading and writing, um, you know, how do you prepare them in an ethical way for standardized tests. And the most of those topics are new. Some of them, as you say, do um, uh, are similar to the questions that were asked in the first book, helping students motivate themselves, but cover a lot of research that has come out since that first book and add new lessons uh, teaching um, teaching those those topics. And you know, as you say, there are some. Each chapter has immediate, uh, you know, what do you do like right now or tomorrow in dealing with some of these challenges, and then what are what are some lesson plans that you can do that would take a um, a period or two involving all the students? Yeah, a period or um, two or several weeks. I kept looking at I kept looking and thinking, oh, I would love to do this. How could you do all of these? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and what we do is generally try to do one a week over the course of a year, uh, you know, and are able to do that and integrate it into our English curriculum, at least. Um, 
fairly easily. You know, one a year, one, I mean, one a week, one every 10 days, that kind of thing. So, uh, um, you know, and some, some of the lessons are more naturally towards the beginning of the year when you talk about, you know, what, what is the value behind learning how to read or write better? You know, and, how, and challenging students to look at what are some times that, would, that, that they, would, they would serve their interests to be able to read and write. Um, and then, again, something that a student, you know, that a, uh, that a teacher can apply, you know, tomorrow when a student is acting out in class. Um, and again, you know, reflecting, you know, reflecting the research and the actual experience in the classroom. I mean, all these lessons have been done multiple times in multiple classes. Um, and certainly differ from their original, <laughs> the original, you know, the original lesson based on on what happened. There's a lesson I think you left out. <laughs> That's well, pretty cheeky okay. of me, isn't it? It's per, it's okay. personal curation. I think you live this lesson, this uh, ability to kind of uh, use the tools of technology to accumulate lots of interesting material around things that you're interested in. And mm -hmm. I see this as being something really valuable for students in developing their own set of personal interests and sense of expertise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, actually, um, one of the things that um, we've started doing this year is uh, not not, a, not on the technology side of things, but students, we have a, a special notebook that students um, curate the most, what they view as the most important aspects of what we call life skill lessons. And then um, out of these notebooks, uh, you know, are able to do regular reflection on them and do regular um, work on them. And actually next year, one of our plans is to try to more more integrate technology into some of these. Certainly, there's plenty of examples of supplemental technology, uh, ways to supplement, supplement these lessons with technology. But we're talking about next year trying to be a little more um, innovative in figuring out how students can, um, uh, can get some value-added benefit to it by using technology. You know, I use Evernote for that, and I I feel it's a, mm -hmm. it represents a really significant shift in my own ability to gather and then kind of focus on specific topic areas through the, the curating of the resources. Okay. So oh, yeah, I mean, that would be great. One of the challenges that at least our school faces is technology as well. You know, we have very limited, um, I mean, we have, you know, the, very limited technology access, at, you know, at our schools and at our school at least, and I think a lot of a lot of other schools. And being able to integrate it more in a, on a regular basis is it's it's just a challenge hardware-wise. So, but we hope by, we hope over the next few years that that's change a little bit. Larry, one of your strategies is choice and ownership. And um, mm -hmm. Peter Gray came on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, wrote a book called Free to Learn, and talked about uh, students having a less control over their own lives than those in prison. 
a lot of what you do is around choice and ownership, but it's within sort of the confines or the constraints of kind of highly structured age-banded cohorts. Um, how do you find a balance there uh, between the, the kind of freedom that I think Peter is talking about and the, the choice and ownership that, that you can provide students? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, trying to to deal with the, you know, the world as it is, and we talk about that in organizing, and, you know, and uh, William Obama, based on his organizing experiences, uses the same frame of the world as it is, as opposed to the world that we would like it to be. That, um, you know, if we, we have to recognize that there's a, there's that tension, you know, and, and in the world as it is, recognize, at least you know, my perspective, is um, trying to, to figure out how much control students can realistically have in our classroom and also be able to move forward and also recognizing some of the other challenges, personal and behavioral challenges, that our students face. Um, you know, when I talk about choice and ownership, one of the, the, the things that I always think about is uh, it was uh, exper a famous experiment by Nobel Prize winner uh, Daniel Kahneman, I think that's how it's pronounced, where, where you know, people are more motivated when they have more control over their environment. You know, in his, in his experiment, which has been repeated a zillion times, you know, half the participants in the lottery were given random numbers, and the other half were given pieces of paper, and they could write whatever numbers they wanted. And then researchers offered to buy the tickets, and they found that the people who wrote their own numbers, that they had to pay them five times what they had to pay those who were given numbers. You know, so like in other words, they found the ability to choose for ourselves makes us five times more committed to the outcome than if somebody chooses for us. So, um, you know, I, you know, exploring, you know, different homework alternatives and assignments, um, inviting students to uh, be involved in the decision in the seating, seating arrangements, um, talking, you know, getting their input on consequences from misbehavior. Um, you know, all those, you know, all those are are very realistic and relatively easy ways for us to give students choice and genuine choice. I, mean, I remember reading about, I remember reading a story in horror about, uh, in a book about a teacher who was saying, um, giving them a choice, giving students a choice on which side, giving them a blank sheet of paper and they could decide which which side of the paper they uh, wanted to write their answers to, right? I mean, we're talking about a, a genuine choice, um, not not a fake not fake choices. Yeah, interesting. There's a whole movement toward, um, and it's not new necessarily, but towards democratic schools where the students actually participate in the decision making. There's a similar movement in the prison world. Um, knowing that you're dealing with what actually exists, um, is there a part of you that wishes there could be more of that kind of actual 
choice in decision making? Well, I think you know. I mean, I think clearly that would be a great situation to be in, um, and um, you know, you know, realistically, uh, at least with the students that I work with, you know that that that's down the that's down the road, so to so to speak. I mean, but you know, but certainly. We have had classes where students have been involved in um, helping to identify better menus that are served for, for food that's served in the cafeteria, for um, working on real world issues like you know organizing a community meeting for job training providers in the neighborhood. Um, you know, clearly the more the more power that students can have, the better, assuming that they are in a good position to use it, you know, and that they have good judgment um, to do that. And, I, and, and certainly, I'm sure in some schools that probably students are further along the road to that. Um, and maybe, you know, as students get older, I think, you know, that would, I, I could see that happening. I think for a lot of our students, their lives are so totally out of control outside of school uh, that they and their families have so little power in what's going to happen. I mean, any of us sort of even know where they're going to sleep that night. That, um, you know, having them just, you know, determine involved in deciding what kind of homework it is, is a good first step for developing a sense of power. But certainly, you know, it, you know ideally, um, the more students that are integrated in decision making in the school, the better. You know, because the more power that people have, sometimes people view power as a finite pie. That if I have, if I, you know, if you get some, that means I have less. Where in fact, the more the power that the more the power is spread around, the bigger the whole pie gets. The bigger the number of possibilities. Let's move to the to the last chapter, just because I want to make sure we have time to talk about it. Uh, there are other things that I hope we can get to, and, and if not, that's okay. But this chapter, kind of, this is the one: How do you best prepare students for standardized tests while doing mm -hmm. no harm to them? Mm -hmm. This actually kind of took me by surprise, right? Because mm -hmm. the common kind of progressive refrain would be, if you teach kids to be truly interested, then that will be reflected on their doing well in the test. But you took an approach that both it surprised me, kind of delighted me, and then sort of left me wondering, right? There were a number mm -hmm. of ways in which you could show the students how to prepare that relate to the more ambiguous nature of test taking, right? Do you want to describe what those are? Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know there are a number of issues, a number of things that uh, I think teachers can do to help students prepare for a test that they can use in other high-stress situations in their lives, um, ranging from you know, 10 minutes before they have to take the standardized test, 
having students write about uh, successful um, ancestor of theirs. I mean, research has shown that students writing about a successful ancestor and then talking to a neighbor about it for a few minutes helps students develop um, a greater sense of motivation because most test-taking research has shown that a, that in addition to what you were saying, that yes, just teaching the lessons, teaching meaningful lessons, is the most important thing you can do for students to do well on tests. So that is accurate. But a huge, the next biggest percentage is student motivation, is how motivated are students to, to perform well, do their best. And the reality of it is these are high stakes for all of us. And if st students can develop skills you know, or knowledge about how to be focused in a high-stakes situation that they can also apply prior to a job interview in the future, prior to other high-stakes situations, and it takes a few minutes. For me, well, I figure, you know, why not? Um, you know, um, including, you know, trying to have students take the test in a place that they're familiar with. I mean, our administration organizes it so that students take, you know, if you, if you for their English test, they're actually with their English teacher in the same English classroom. Um, and then, this idea of being test-wise, you know, that again, plenty of research has also shown that the key is to not spend weeks on test prep, but you know, spend a you know a handful of class. If you're going to do it, spend a handful of class periods on it. Um, and doing it you know, in the generative can, way that you've described, right? This is this right, is a way that right. can help you. In the future, there's the the ancestor one was was just brilliant for me. The writing about a personal successful experience, successful personal experience. Then you had one that was ten minutes talking. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yeah, we just just getting people talking about a topic of interest to them to a neighbor. The research shows it gets the brain. It sort of activates the brain and gets people, you know, a little, you know, just a little more on. Um, I mean, these are the kind of things that I think are ethical. One of the challenges is that if you are just totally focused on test prep and more test prep and more test prep, would students potentially have a higher test um, gain? And what research shows is that, you know, oftentimes that's, that's possible. But just last year, actually earlier this year, no, last year, this is in the book, this big study came out and showed that, yes, even though there may be an immediate bump, slight bump, over the long term, student um, achievement deteriorates. So it may get a, it'll be the bump, it'll, it'll get the bump, but then it'll go lower after that. You go to bump, but it'll go lower after that. That it um, that it does serve for cross purposes or for long term academic achievement. And um, you know, I just don't think that that's ethical, even though it actually might bump up the numbers a little bit more.
So John Hattie came on the show, and you reference him in the book, so I know you know who he is. He did the mm -hmm. meta-study of meta-studies. And he t I, I think it was John who talked about helping students think about assessments in terms of measuring their own ability to learn, and actually having their mm -hmm. learning how to learn be the focus of their actual mm -hmm. education. Does that resonate with you? Is that a, uh, is that a way that you've uh, looked to assessments with your own students? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in the book, have students have a major lesson on helping students develop um, metacognition. I mean, with, with the OECD, if I forget what those, that acronym stands for, you know, the they come out with the big, is it OC, OCD? Yeah, the, that the international body that comes out with the international test scores every year, the PISA tests. Um, they've, they've identified, for example, metacognition as the, um, as the, the key element in student achievement. And helping students recognize this idea of metacognition and thinking about their thinking and, and being conscious about it and assessing themselves on when they're doing it is really, I think, really important. Um, because, I mean, the reality of it is that we're not going to be, we teachers aren't going to be around them a whole lot of times. <laughs> and we want students to be able to see it in their self-interest um, to be thinking about their thinking when we're not around. You know, without, you know, before, without, when they're not even going to be, you know, they're going to get graded on, on their metacognitive um, awareness. That, that, you know, that not going to be called upon to show, to, to explain why they're, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. They just need to, they realize that it's in their long-term self-interest to achieve their goals to, you know, to, to be doing these kind of things. To be looking at, well, what is the best way? What is the best way for me to learn? Do I tend to, um, um, if I reread the paragraph, does that work for me? Is it better for me to maybe take a minute and summarize the chapter in one in one sentence? Um, which, you know, how how few words can I highlight in this passage? that really show me uh, what the important elements are. So when I come back to have to study, I only have to look at those instead of reading the whole page. Um, no, but students need to see it in their self-interest to do this. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when you get, you know, and, and having videos of people like LeBron James or, um, or other Olympic athletes talking about, you know, how they use reflection, how they use metacognition. And it, you know, I mean, the bottom line is that's, that can be pretty powerful. Or when you have Michael Jordan talking about, you know, that the reason for his success is because of all the mistakes he made and the willingness to turn the risk. You know, I mean, that's, that kind of stuff can help. Uh, every lesson you have in the book, I think, exemplifies this whole concept of metacognition. And I've been calling it generativity, but I think it's a part of this interest in having the students become aware of their own um, learning how to learn. And certainly those of us who are adults 
have developed all kinds of strategies. I never read a book straight through, right? I read the introduction, I read the conclusion, I pick up chapters that I like, I treat it like a conversation so that I will stay motivated and interested. But a lot of our models for education are sort of sequential recipes. And the, you talk about flow as one of your new, uh, as one of the new strategies. And it occurred to me that, you know, the original story, I think, of flow was that um, Chicxulub, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that he watched artists, right, and then asked them questions afterwards about the processes they'd gone through. And if there's ever a group of people who are going to have different ways of approaching something, right, who are going to have different methodologies, who, who will have cycles of productivity or will learn to walk away, it, it would seem like those are artists. And do you, do you mm -hmm. think that, um, well, I guess I don't, I don't know how to form that question necessarily, but uh, in terms of students becoming sort of aware of their strategies, um, is that your ultimate hope? Well, yes, and I think also helping in having students um, learn what researchers have found to be successful strategies for many others, and for them to try them out and determine which ones work best for them and which other ones might work best, but might work even better. Um, and for students and for teachers to model that and um, for students to constantly be reassessing what works and to testing it out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, all that is, you know, you know comes together. But I think introducing, I mean, again, coming from my organizing perspective is, you know, we talked about, I mean, the romanticized version of community organizing is that everything emanates from the people. Right, and organizers just sort of move that along. But the reality of it is, no, I mean, because people, they've got lots of other challenges about family and work and stuff, and organizers are doing this full time, just as teachers are teaching full time. So we got to think of, we got to come up with these ideas, share with them, share this with students, have students then give them the opportunity to make it their own and to adapt it, to change it to get them to react to it. And I think the key is um, inviting the reaction, acknowledging the reaction, you know, and celebrating the reaction. Um, and, and that's why in terms of teaching, I think, um, you know, Marzano did this big report last year on this meta-analysis and identified that assisted discovery learning is much more effective most of the time than direct instruction. Where, you know, in assisted discovery, I mean, it, a lot of, you know, it, it's what I was talking about where you, you put some ideas out there. One of my big favorite lessons is inductive learning. As a, you know, inductive learning where you give students lots of examples and the students have to develop the concept or the rule out of the example as opposed to, as opposed to um, deductive, where you where you tell students this is the rule, this is the concept. Here are a bunch of examples. Um, that uh, this idea of inductive, I think, is 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 much more effective 
and helping students develop this sense of ownership around their learning. So Larry, I want to posit that what you describe in this book and in the previous one and in the body of your work is a counterpoint to the idea of efficiency in learning, the sort of the new learning machine, the um, kind of sort of big data feedback that um, kind of uh, uh, is described by many as um, computer-assisted personalization, which will take only a few teachers with many, many more students. That's my perception, but I'm, I'm interested in whether or not you feel like that's accurate. This feels like really hard human work that makes a huge difference in the lives of students. The other feels like an attempt to create a system for content assimilation. Again, am I just oversimplifying, or is that actually a reasonable way to look at the two philosophies? Yeah, I mean, I would, yes, I think it's probably somewhat simplification, but I think it's basically accurate. I mean, I think this is, this is the, well, I think what I'm talking about is, is really what personalized learning is, as opposed to how it has been, it is typically discussed in terms of machine learning. So I'm not against data. You know, I'm all for the idea of being data informed, not being data driven, and being and recognizing that data has a broad definition of what data is. Data is just not numbers. Um, um, though I'm open to learn. I mean, I've learned stuff from numbers. I mean, I look at student test scores. I look at student standardized test scores. You know, and Sometimes I view it as useful and sometimes not, you know, but, you know, I also view data as what's going on in the, my students' lives and their families and the challenges that they're facing. And if, um, um, you, know, it, you know, if they are, you know, how many, you know, if the, the quality of their questions, are they using the higher levels? of Bloom's taxonomy are they using the lower levels? Are they being relational? Is you know, is this person actually helping their partner learn on something that they don't know? I mean that's all data. I don't think you know it's not necessarily measurable by a standardized test. So we'll take a few minutes here for Q and A. We've got about six minutes left. If you have a question for Larry, you can either put it in the chat or you can raise your virtual hand. In the participant box, you'll see some icons. The third one over is a hand, and you can raise your hand if you want to ask Larry a question, or feel free to put it in the chat. And also, just so people know, I mean, if you go to my blog and you click on the, the book cover of Self-Driven Learning, it'll lead you to tons of, ex of excerpts from it and free lesson plans and a bunch of other info on Larry, a number of people have used the phrase self-directed learning. You call this self-driven learning. What's the distinction for you? Oh, I don't. I don't know if it's more than semantics. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I have seen the expression, the, the, the phrase "self-directed." Um, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't actually uh, say specifically what that is. If it's any different from self-driven, you know, it's. Self-driven is the is the phrase that the publisher and I came up with, <laughs> you know. So uh, to to just uh, to build on this whole concept of developing intrinsic motivation.
Are you familiar? Is anybody on the chat room more familiar with how this idea of self-directed learning is is used? Well, I had um, I'm forgetting his name on the show who who uh, wrote the book wrote a very well-known book on self-directed learning, and it was actually much more the kind of independent direction. And I didn't know if you were purposefully avoiding that term because of the um, the the in the, the independence involved. It doesn't sound like it. No, but I mean, it's probably a good, re good way, a good reason not to not to call it self-directed. I mean, I think it, you know, this idea is it's about developing, you know, helping students want to pursue things independently, but recognizing that you know a lot of our students aren't there yet. You know, need to be encouraged to do that. I mean, I think that's like the whole thing with. The, the flipped classroom idea. I think for a lot of highly motivated students, that I mean, I'm sure that works well. I think for many of our other students, many students, it will not. So Bob wants to know, what's your advice for getting parents to recognize that their children are in an authoritarian class when authoritative would better serve the students? Well, I think. Um, it's it's actually quite interesting. I've, I've been getting a fair number of emails from parents asking about what they should do, you know, of about um, their teachers who are being more authoritarian. And I had a close friend in a similar situation, and uh, I've just um, would just recommend to give them the summary of the. Of the the studies on it, there's a link in it in my book in the book, and I'm sure if if you just search authoritarian in on my blog, it'll lead you to a blog post where you can just get a one-page summary of that. And if you've got a relationship with the teacher, have them uh, have them look at it, um, uh, you know, or or, or have or, 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 have parents look at that and think about, you know, having talked to their their students about it. So that's what I've recommended to people. We probably have time for one more question. If you have a question, you can put it in the chat, or if you would like, you can raise your virtual hand, and we'll give you the microphone. Bob's sort of following. Yeah, up well, here. I see Bob. Yeah, it's well, I've certainly had that experience. I mean, it's. Where you know where, where parents have said, oh, tell me with their student, you know, when they're challenging with their children, just be harsher because it worked for them. And and I mean, I think again in terms of dealing with parents, leading with the ears instead of the mouth is the key thing. I mean, I think you can't lead with a explanation about this, but you can lead with the teacher with a discussion about what's going on with you know with their family. What is their dream and vision for their child? Uh, what are they, what's their vision for their family? I mean, listen and develop a relationship and develop a sense of trust. Unfortunately, for so many parents, the only time they hear from us is when there's a problem about their student, which is you know, and and uh, um, that is not the best time to help the parents be open to thinking in a different way. I love that answer. Larry, I don't want to ignore this question, but it's the last one, and, and feel free to just give a 30-second answer. 
Gene wants to know if you've considered lessons around locus of control. So many at-risk kids seem not to see a connection between their activity and their future. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, a whole lot of the lessons in both of my books are related to that. I mean, it's all designed to help um, students see that, you know, questioning what is what they are doing now going to help get them where they want to go, ranging whether it's the marshmallow, the famous marshmallow experiment, and students seeing how a lack of self-control leads to uh, leads to not being successful, and self-control leads to being can lead to being successful. To um, one of the lessons in the new book, and you can find some information in my blog I read about it is, you know, that all the lessons around bullying, um, all the information about bullying primarily focuses on the negative impact it has on the person being bullied, which makes a lot of sense. But recently, there's been some research on the negative aspect it has on the bullier person being the bully and how the long-term negative impact on them is, uh, I mean, I think that is um, a different way of looking at it. And just as in rudeness in this book, there's a lesson on rudeness, looking at what is the negative impact on the people being rude, how they are looked at in a negative way, how they have fewer friends, how they have, they get fewer grades that um, looking at it in, in that, from that perspective is, is really key. Larry, thanks so much. Uh, uh, as usual, really delightful and so appreciate your voice and the work that you do. Thank you for having me. And of course, I mean, people can easily get a hold of me if they have comments or suggestions for other lessons or ideas. Always open to hearing that either contact form my blog or Twitter or any of the other myriad ways I am on social media. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. It's a good this is a good way to for me to help get energy to cross the finish line tomorrow on the last day of school. <laughs> Have a great uh, day. Tomorrow. No no Steve for me this time. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thanks everybody for being here. Don't miss uh in July Matt Hearn will start us back up again after a short break. Manuel Richardson and Don Winkle. Thanks to Larry. Thanks to all of you for attending. Take care now and bye.